0: Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. We did a pretty lengthy study on First Peter that began all the way back in 2019 and then reconvened after the pandemic, and uh, we spent a significant amount of time reflecting upon this text. So I'd like to use it as a springboard. I'm sure you remember everything that we talked about back then, so... We'll, we'll, we'll remind you this morning. You know, when we come to this season of celebration and this season of thanks, it's important for us to gain some, some healthy perspective. Uh, let me share with you what I've watched over the course of my ministry for some 40-plus years now, and what I've seen over the last 22 years as I've served here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City. And what I've watched and what I've seen and what I've been able to detect is the world is a radically different place than it was a mere 20 years ago. Twenty years ago, it seemed like evangelicalism was at its zenith, at its height. We had a voice in the public square, there's a Judeo-Christian ethos that seemed to prevail in the culture in spite of some of the challenges of our society. Our faith could be shared and our life could be lived in a way that kept to the moral and and ethical boundaries of the Scripture, and there was a place and a role for us in society and in culture. Yet, unfortunately today, we have lost that voice and we have lost that role. We'll have to take some responsibility for that, yet at the same time, we're gradually being nudged out of of our place in society. There seems to be no place in the public square for the voice of the evangelical any longer. and We begin to wonder what the next couple of years and the next 20 years might look like. And if we were to paint a picture based on fact, not fantasy, it is going to be a bumpy ride. We will begin to experience what many countries around the world have already experienced, and that is a persecution for our faith. We will begin to be faced with challenges to the very essence of our faith, our morality, and our ethics. We will be drowned out by the dissenters who say that we're filled with hate, and our speech has no place in the culture. And you say, what in the world, Pastor Jim, are you even dealing with this on Celebration Sunday? Well, hang on, and I'll tell you. Do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. The Lord, our God, is with us. You might think, what's happened? What is happening to our culture, our church, and the times in which we live? They're changing. Jesus never changes, even more so. As so we live in this fallen, broken world, we experience in our own personal lives death and destruction and loss and disease, financial and emotional and spiritual, physical burdens. And it's at those times that we begin to wonder where God is. Why is it, in fact, that God isn't meeting our needs or meeting us in our place? Or why is it that we're not being blessed anymore? And that's the crux of the matter. I was uh, preparing for this message more than six months ago, thinking through what it is that needs to, to happen to guide the congregation through these ever evolving changes, very few for the good. What is it that can give them lasting hope? And what is the basis for our celebration today? Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that and we're going to look at that and. This message will have serious ramifications for you and your family moving forward in a world that no longer resembles the world that we used to live in. I, I'm at a, such a stage in life that I am burying mentors and people that I've known my whole life. And they were the backbone of the church, men and women of faith and men and women of strength who, in many ways, I thank God. Aren't going to be here to see the impact of these seismic changes. God has spared them of much of what is to come. And yet at the same time, I want you to know that God has spared you as well. We just need a perspective change. We just need to, to look at this the way God looks at this and, and find some sense of encouragement. So if you recall, in First Peter, the Apostle Peter is writing to believers, encouraging them to remain steadfast, encouraging them to focus on the real blessings of life, not those things that are temporary or transient, and building them up as they began to face real and severe persecution. And as he begins his letter and he speaks to these believers, he makes it very clear that persecution and heartache and difficulty isn't something that may happen in your life. It will happen in your life. It's just a matter of time. But 20 years ago, all was headed in a a good trajectory and, and in a good place, and perhaps we forgot the things that mattered most. So Peter writes in verse 3, Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Before we move forward and pray, look at His admonition in verse 13. In light of these things, or therefore, prepare your mind for action. Get ready. Get ready." What does he mean by that? Again, he's writing to a persecuted group, and he's saying it's not going to get better. He's writing to a group that will be distracted by the essence of life and the challenges that come their way for simply believing in the gospel. He's saying, get ready. He's telling us that in good times and in bad times and all the time, we need to prepare our minds for what lies ahead. And in preparing our minds and equipping ourselves, when it happens, we'll be ready. And yet somehow, in this crazy world, and every single one of us is guilty, when it happens, it kind of knocks the breath out of us, moves us back a couple of paces, And we have to get our bearings. I want you to know you're not alone in any of this. From the beginning of the early church until the time that Jesus comes again and He is coming again. Prepare your minds. Father, to that end we pray that you will use this passage. You will use these thoughts. You will use these these truths you will shed light on the evangelical culture and that you would prepare us for that which lies ahead. And if you would, we pray that you'd prolong it. If you would, we pray that you'd protect us. If you you would, we pray that it wouldn't get too bad. But if it does, may we be prepared. And in the middle of all of that, rejoice with joy unspeakable inexpressible, filled with glory. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but we do know the author of all of our tomorrows. May we find our rest in Him in this season of thanks, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Did you notice the interesting transition in his introduction here? He starts and founds and grounds all of life and our personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. You know what that means, right? Giving you what you do not deserve. He has caused us to be born again. He did that to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He shares with us the gospel, and He shares with us the very foundation of hope and the very foundation of life and what it is that we must cling to in the most difficult portions of life. He reminds us that there is coming an inheritance that is imperishable. It won't spoil. It's undefiled. It will not be tainted no matter what happens in this world it is unfading. Therefore, even in the dark days of life, your joy remains inexpressible and filled with glory, because the promises of God never fade, nor go away, nor spoil, or are defiled by sin. In fact, He says, they are being kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He is putting bookends on our life. He said, your life began when you came to know Christ as Savior. And here's what it is that you've grounded your life on. And your life and its entirety and completeness will end when you experience all of the inheritance that He has promised to you. Almost as if He's telling these beleaguered people, God always keeps His promise… And then he says, in between those two things, in between salvation and all of the promises of God until the fulfillment and culmination of our life, whether we pass or are gathered together at the sound of a trumpet, even so, come Lord Jesus, in between those times, prepare your minds for a little while, you'll be grieved by various trials that will test the genuineness of your faith. Evangelicalism today says, we want the first three verses you read, Pastor Jim, not the fourth. Thank you. We want the salvation. We want the inexpressible joy. We want the blessings. We want God to fix what's broken. We want Him to make it right, and we want it today. Don't don't tell us that in between those things, life is going to be hard. It's the message of evangelicalism. So, we begin to preach with the, to the congregation who are asking for their best life now, and we've done them a terrible disservice because this isn't our best life. You just wait until you see Him face to face. You just wait until you gain that inheritance. You just wait until He makes all things right. Right? that demands that we look at life in the right perspective. And the right perspective is here and now, there will be various trials. Bank on it. Count on it. It is a reality of life. So where is God in in all of that? Well, that is the gift of lament. And that gift of lament is critically important in life's difficult times, whether they be in your personal life, in our corporate life in the world and culture in which we live. Lament is a critical component that evangelicalism has lost their grip on. We preach this gospel message that Jesus wants to take away all of your cares and sorrows and give you your best life today, but that is a false gospel that has dire consequences, and I'll show you and share with you the consequences are greatest for our children and our children's children. The truth of the matter is, when we look at lament and the realities of life, we are reminded that there are millions of ordinary Christians who hold that God is omnipotent, that God is perfectly good, and that suffering abounds in the world. Somehow we can hang on to that tension that God is good even though there's suffering. And at many stages of their experience as Christians, they do not feel that there is a problem. They have brief theological answers that satisfy them suffering is a result of sin. Free will means that God has to leave people to make their own mistakes, and, and heaven and hell will finally set the record straight. D.A. Carson then writes, And then something takes place in their own life that jolts them to the core. Theology that is an inch deep brings security that's an inch deep. As Peter warned the recipients of his letter, we glean that warning and we understand that our theology will be tested. What remains to be seen is whether it will stand the test of time and circumstances in our life. But that all depends on how we perceive our theology. It all all depends on our perspective on, on hard times and dark valleys and death and destruction. You see, for most of evangelicalism today, and yes, I'm being critical, I read a lot. And then I say, what's the point? Because I'm reading a lot of platitudes and a lot of promises and a lot of blessings that I don't know to be true in my life, and most of you wouldn't either. It makes me feel good while I take the mere minutes it takes to read a book like that. But when the rubber hits the road, there's not a lot of consolation in that. I can worship a God who hates suffering. I believe in a God who can eliminate it. I will even choose to worship a God who allows bad things to happen, as long as it doesn't happen to me. Thank you. Aren't we great? telling people that all things work together for good when it's their issue and not ours. Peter's trying to prepare us for those times. He's trying to teach us how to to wrestle with all of those things. And when those evil things happen and when those heartaches come and when life actually takes place, and all of it's ugliness sometimes… We don't get it because we've been told that God wants us to be happy. This isn't making me happy, God. What? What's the deal? Jonathan Dodson recently published a, an article in which he quotes a British documentarian called Adam Curtis who was commenting on Western civilization, not a believer, but some good insight on the culture that we live in, in the age of the individual. It's wonderful to be free. It's wonderful to be freed from those who are old or elite or the patricians. It's wonderful to be freed that they can't tell us what to do anymore. But on the downside, in this age of the individual, you're on your own. And things are fine when things go well, but when things go badly, you're weak and uncertain. Believe that we're going to be in this fantastic world where we would be at the center of everything. We would be tar- in charge of, of our own lives. And in my words, not his, how's that working out for you? Because then he reminds us that that brings nothing but uncertainty with it. I fear sometimes in the season of Thanksgiving, And maybe we've lent to that here at First Baptist. I've thought a lot about this. Um, I thought it'd been clear. I, I thought it'd been right. But even in these celebration Sundays, we all want to do the happy clappy, isn't God wonderful, everything's going so well, God has blessed us so abundantly, yay, yay, yay. But what does that do to prepare people when that's not the reality and the trouble comes? does that do to prepare the body? Does that send, as far as a message to this world is concerned, I'll tell you the message that that sends. And we're experiencing it with this great exodus of young people from the church today. We have made them promises without perspective. We've made them all of these glorious promises, but we haven't put those in perspective. They are rooted in Christ, and sometimes they don't come until after this life. No, we forget those parts of it, and we just promise them the good life. We do it in our music. We do it in our teaching. We do it in our culture. But without that perspective, these promises will be challenged the first time something goes wrong. I believe that weighs or at least plays part of a role in young people leaving the church. We've made them promises, but we didn't put them into context. We didn't put them into context like, like Peter does. The day that you are saved and the day that you see him in between, life's going to be difficult. We leave that part out. Why? Because it's not popular. They don't want to hear that. They want to come and hear the big band and all the happy music and lift their spirits until Monday. That's about as far as that lasts. Because there's no sustenance to life. There's no substance. And when the trouble comes, it's difficult. We give them promise without preparation. We promise them of the goodness of God, but we forget that in this world you will have tribulation. You know those are the very words of Jesus, don't you? John chapter 16. We forget that part. It's not popular. We don't want to talk about it. God forbid that we talk about what's happening in our culture today. But we need to talk about it. Our kids need to hear us talk about it, and they need to learn that even at the season of thanks, if we are at the darkest point in our life, God is still good. Do you believe it? They'll believe it when we do. They'll believe it when we change the way we preach and teach. They'll believe it when we prepare them to bask in the promises of God and get ready for the challenges of life. In essence, what evangelicalism has chosen to do is to provide promise without a payout. It baffles me. And these wealth and health and prosperity churches where there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people there, it baffles me why they stay, because you can't tell me that their life has gone according to the script. They believe that if they keep hearing the message and giving their money, surely this is going to work out for my good. What does matter with you? How has that worked out for you? As we're preparing for all of this, you say, well, this is kind of a downer. But really, it's not. Here's what I want you to know. In the midst of the realities of life, there are uncertainties. We've been talking about that in Ecclesiastes. And the world is a fallen world, and... Sometimes it falls on you. We're in a season where I know firsthand that life has fallen on a bunch of you. You're scrambling to claw your way out of the mess. I hear you. God hears you. We pray for you. And we ask that you would take due consideration. For the things that we speak of today, and to be thankful for this gift of lament. A couple of years ago, we talked briefly about lament. A lament is found all throughout the Old Testament. I believe that you can even see it in Paul's life in the New Testament. And a lament was this prayer, this cry to God, searching for understanding and searching for peace in a world of suffering and disheartening circumstances. The lament was this opportunity for people to go to God and say, why? For people to go to God and say, I'm drowning here. For people to go to God and say, don't you know what I'm going through? Have you forgotten me that gift that we've been given to God, by God in the most disheartening times of life, to be able to cry out to Him in all its rawness. A lament is a form of prayer. Where we go wrong is mistaking our complaints as laments. No, a lament is a prayer. And I want you to know that you should be thankful today that you have a God who is so big that He will hear your complaints if you cry out to Him. But we don't teach that in evangelicalism anymore, either. We don't teach people how to cry out to God. So they walk away, believing that the church doesn't have the answers that they need, and these uncertainties of life We've not given them permission to do so. And in this form of prayer, it begins with a plea, and it ends with a celebration. It ends with a, with a trust statement. And lament is, is a prayer that talks to God about the reality of our pain. Yet in the end, trust that God is bigger than that. Here's how the psalm writer wrote it in Psalm 6, my soul is in deep anguish. Can anyone relate to that? Deep, deep anguish, a darkness, a cloud that that hangs over you. A lament says, how long, Lord, how long am I going to be under this cloud? Some of you who are deeply spiritual never say that. Those who are genuinely spiritual learn to say that. You understand the difference, don't you? Got all your theology right. All of your ducks are in a row. It doesn't affect me. Then you're not living life. Maybe you can't handle the heartache. And maybe you can't come to the conclusions that it's not going to work out in this lifetime, and, and, and it might get worse before it gets better. I'm not sure what your issue is, but for those who have a vital relationship with God and Jesus Christ, we can ask Him, how long? We can tell Him about our pain and our disappointment and our anguish. Do you know that that's a gift? You, do you understand how great that gift is? God will hear you He will hear your cries and your pleas. You have permission to speak your heart. You say, I can't speak to God like that. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think He knows your heart already? Just say it. Just confess it. Just tell Him where you are in your life. And you have something to be thankful for, a God who hears and a God who understands and a God who gets it, and a God who has made you promises that He will keep Perhaps that's the essence of the question, how long? What about your promises? Sometimes in the midst of that, I please come with the silence of God. Have you ever been there? I've been there in my life. He's silent. He doesn't speak. I don't, I don't feel His presence. I, I don't understand what's going on, and there's nothing there. The truth of the matter is, there's a lot there. When it comes to those difficult things in life, particularly in your own life, for many people, the problem of evil is not really an intellectual problem. We understand our theology on an intellectual basis. It's an emotional problem. They're hurting inside and perhaps bitter against a God who would permit them or others to suffer. Never mind that there are philosophical solutions to the problem of evil. They don't care. And simply reject a God who allows such suffering as we find in the world today. They are struggling in their minds. They are struggling with their emotions They are struggling physically, they are struggling spiritually, and they are screaming as loud as they can for anyone who wishes to hear, how long? This isn't what I thought it was going to be. If you turn over to Psalm 13, we have a depiction for us of a song of lament. The gift of being able to cry out to God for the issues of life. A couple of interesting things about this text. It is written by David, and it reflects a personal experience. He was fearful for his life. It seemed like his enemies had gotten the upper hand on him, and life wasn't going the way he wanted it to go. But I also want you to notice, although it was deeply personal, this Psalm of David, it was given to the choir master. Here's what that means, and this is important. It was given to those who believed when they gathered together to read, to study, and to rehearse. It was given to the people of God so that they might understand that in life's difficult circumstances and in their desire to be filled with thanks, there is a role for lament, I also want you to know, and we'll point it out later in the text, that that lament means because it was given to all of the people as a personal expression of grief, that there was an answer among those people to come alongside of David and to assist him in his grief. Today that's the church. And in life's most difficult times, we need God's people in the local church. You understand that? I 'm sure we always do. I'm thankful that we have a very responsive congregation who intercedes on behalf of god 's people here at First Baptist, who meets their needs in many different ways, not by a program or through professionals, but flesh on flesh, heart to heart. How, how can I help you? All of Israel is given a glimpse of David 's heartache, his deep-seated heartache. And remember it 's the king. If, it can, if this can affect the King, it can affect all of us. I often wonder, and I don't know for sure, why is it that God allows things to happen in my life? Maybe, maybe for me to learn the most important lessons and live through it for His glory and your good. I don't know why God does it. And sometimes I pray the prayer of a lament, I wish you wouldn't do it, God. Try someone else for change. I know someone who deserves this. <laughs> who do I think I am that, that I, don't, I don't deserve this kind? Of, who do I think I am? David gives this gift to God's people. He's saying it's okay to say, "How long, O oh Lord?" It's okay to cry out in anguish. It's okay to admit that you are weak and that you're broken and you're floundering. It's okay to cry out to Him and share your complaint. But He also points out in this text that not only is there help among God's people, there's help in the Word of God. And that's where we lose our way in evangelicalism today. We spin this into some happy, clappy gathering, and as long as we can make you feel good for a couple of hours, then you're good until Monday rolls around. Or, or we can preach the truth in all of its glory and even the difficult parts so that you're ready when it happens. If God's people aren't ready, they will flounder in the midst. If God's people don't understand this, they're not going to find the way. Do you understand what a gift lament is? To know that God always keeps His promise, yet having the freedom to go to Him when you feel like He hasn't and say, why? What's the deal here? Anyhow, I think this Thanksgiving, with all the seismic changes taking place in our world, we ought to thank God that we can go to him with all of our cares and concerns and laments and say, "Why God I don 't get this Do something about it We' glorious God, the maker of everything that we know is interested in hearing from you at the worst times possible that's a lament that's a gift. instead of saying, why you celebrate the gift." that you can go and ask the questions of the one who has all of the answers. That is the gift of lament. Here's the psalm writer. How long? O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Hello? You see me? Do you, you remember me? I'm, I'm out here floundering. Did you, ever, did you ever wonder about that? David wondered about that. He took it to God. How long will you hide your face from me? God, I can't feel your presence. Where are you? I can't sense you. That's part of the growing problem in evangelicalism today. Devoid of the Word of God and the company of believers, we base our whole life on feelings. And you might not ever feel the presence of God, but the truth is His promise is that He'll never leave you or forsake you. But why don't I feel His presence, because it's not given to you to feel, it's given to you to believe. And when you don't feel it, what do you do? You cry the prayer of lament, how long, God? That's how it goes in my life. Probably stems from, I shared this Wednesday night from our study in Isaiah chapter 6 on the holiness of God. In those cries of lament, I often say, God, show me your glory none of this makes any sense. Show me your glory. Not solve my problems. Not give me an answer. Not make sense of it. Show me your glory. As he pours out and cries out to God, he says, how long must they take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? When is this going to end? Again, I've told you before. I'll tell you again. He knows your name, and He knows your sorrows, and he knows the cries of your heart, and he has granted you permission to go to him and say, how long, oh God, to plead with him for the stage of life that you find yourself in. No matter how dark a place you are in today, there is reason to give thanks that we have a God who hears us. Amen? He hears us. It's a gift. It's a gift. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me. Maybe that's a plea and a prayer of a leader. I'm a shadow of a figure of David and the saints in the Old and New Testament. But sometimes in my lament, I say, God, look, what, what more do you want from me? I've given you my life. I'm dealing with whatever comes my way. Uh, What more do you want? That's a lament. It's a gift that I can go to Him. It's not a gift because I can't go to you. Why? Because you're going to say all things work together for good. Stop it. It doesn't work. And yet I should be able to lament among God's people and find our answers in the truth it's a hard lesson to learn. Even leaders need to learn it, and maybe that's the example in the text. This is the leader of a nation saying, what's the deal, God? But he doesn't end there. That's not the end of the story. He says in context, consider and answer me. Not only does he offer his complaints, he makes a petition, and the petition is pretty simple. Hear me. You notice that he doesn't say, do what I want you to do. He just says, hear me, and if you would be so kind, let me know that you've heard me. Answer, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Give me an understanding, an illumination, lest I sleep the sleep of death, this drudgery of life. I need something to hang on to. So he is complaining, and then he's bringing his plea to God, fearful in his petition, that his enemies would prevail over him and his foes would rejoice because as the leader of God's people, he's shaken. Do you ever feel that way? Some of you right now are thinking, it's a deal, Pastor Jim. I came here, I said, you Build me up and make me happy. I am. I am. God tells us come. Tell me what's on your heart and mind. Share with me your complaints and your heartaches and your sorrows, the deepest anguish that you can't share with anybody else, and I will hear you. I will let you speak. I'll take it all in. And yet we plead, but we need an answer, and sometimes that answer doesn't come, except He's already given us the answer. Let's go back to 1 Peter. The glorious day of your salvation and the glorious day when you receive all of your inheritance, and in between is life. Here's your answer. I will always keep my promises. I will always meet your needs. But it doesn't mean today or tomorrow or in this lifetime. That's where it gets lost in evangelicalism today. You will be whole. Because he promised to make you whole, but it might not be in this lifetime. But in the midst of your pain, if you understand that, he will grant you joy unspeakable and full of glory. Isn't that, isn't that tremendous? He'll lighten your spirits and maybe not your circumstances, and He will whisper, everything's going to be okay. Hang on. David then transitions into a prayer of faith, a prayer of of declaration, I've trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You notice he lives out exactly what Peter tells us in the New Testament. He says, I know it's coming. I'm just struggling today, God. Thank you for listening. I know that you will deliver, and I know that you will keep your promises, and I know I will rejoice someday, and I know I will sing because you have done bountifully with me. doesn't seem to match his circumstances. Because he stopped looking at this temporal life, and he started looking at his life in God and our life in Christ, and that changes our perspective on everything. It doesn't take the pain, and it doesn't remove the anguish, but what a gift to be able to go to God who knows all things and say to Him, I'm drowning, just something, just give me something. And what does He give us? God's people. What does He give us? His Word. That's exactly what David needed. He reflects upon that in the psalm. Psalm 130, another cry. Out of the depths I cry to You, O Lord. I've hit the bottom, and then the bottom falls out. Out of the depths I cry to You, O Lord. Hear my voice, and let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. In chapter 130, verse 5, he responds to his own plight and says, but no matter how life turns out, I will hope in your Word. That's, that's the Word of God. So what, what do you need from me when you come here crying out of the depths? You need the book. You need me to say, take your Bibles and turn to, please, because that is the answer to life. That's the source of living through these difficult things. That is the permission that we get to cry out to a holy and righteous God. And that is the life that He has given us and i look at people and i see them walk through one thing after another and instead of pity i pray that god would make his presence known to them and they would find the freedom to scream his name in the midst of their anguish that the god people, the church, would gather around them, not to give counsel like Job's friends, but to weep with those that weep and to rejoice with those that rejoice, and that all of us would tell our children and their children and everybody else, here's what God says, do not give up your hope. That's exactly what Peter said, isn't it? For a little while, they're suffering. Don't forget the God who knows your name, And don't forget He's coming back. And in this world, you will have tribulation. Sometimes we teach our children at Thanksgiving to be thankful for the turkey and the stuffing, and that's not bad stuff at all. (laughs) But what if there was no turkey? And what if there was no stuffing? And what if there was no perfect ideal family? And what if there was real heartache and pain. We've robbed them of a reason to give thanks unless we take them to the Scriptures and teach them the gift of lament, the ability to cry out to God for their deepest needs. And where will they learn that? Mom and Dad? Grandma and Grandpa? This body of believers that they watch every day? And from the Word, and I will not make any apologies if we dwindle to two I will begin every message by telling you to take your Bibles, because that is where our hope is found. That's the source of the promises of God, and that's the only thing that will sustain you. Oh, I can make you feel happy for an hour. I'm good at this. I have a degree, a graduate degree in counseling and psychology. I can build you up and make you feel great, give you all that kind of fluff. It doesn't help you when the world crashes in. Or I can give you those things that are hard to hear, that will sustain you in the hardest points of life. And that's the gift of the man the promises of God. So, what is God doing in your life? I want you to know that He is doing something, but it's for His glory, not yours. This is according to His plan and not yours. I'm reminded, very favorite text in the Book of Romans, So the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that is what it means to give thanks. That is what it means to be filled with thanksgiving. That is the other side of lament. So where else do we go in the deepest hurts of life other than the God who knows all of that and has ordered our steps for His glory alone? It's found in the unfailing love and loving kindness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ who is committed to us in good times and in bad times, who provides for us a place to come and share our deepest hurts, and then through His Word and His people remind us that a better day is coming. Charles Spurgeon wrote it this way, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests their head. And you know the real reason that David cried out and lament to God? Because he realized that God was the only one who could do anything about it. Wow, what an important lesson for each of us. Now let's go back to our long and lengthy study of the book of Ecclesiastes. With well, this perspective that was solely under the sun, what we could see, what we could experience the essence of life as we knew it, instead of a perspective that is toward the sun, with the acknowledgement of struggle and grief and heartache, the belief that a better day is coming. It is extraordinary how little the New Testament says about God's interest in our success. By comparison with the enormous amount that it says about God's interest in our holiness, our maturity in Christ, and our growth into the fullness of His image. God never promised to fulfill His deepest promises in this life today. But today, in whatever He's doing and whatever you're experiencing… is doing it for His glory, for your holiness, for your maturity, for your growth. Therefore, Peter says to his recipients, "Who are already feeling the pressures. It may get worse. Prepare your mind for action. But don't ever forget the inheritance of the saints if you have not one thing to be thankful for in this season of thanksgiving, you haven't been paying attention. What are we teaching our children? And what are we learning ourselves about the essence of life? Now, listen carefully. This isn't a ledger. In fact, writer of Ecclesiastes wanted to make it a ledger, and he was going to calculate whether God was good or not. So, on one side of that ledger, he would take all of his pain and disappointment and question, and on the other side of that ledger, he will take all of those things that he perceived to be blessings and promises of God, and if one was weighted greater than the other, he would draw conclusions about God. That's not what a lament is. A lament is based on the very fact that God is good all of the time, and that's why we cry out, to Him, and that's a gift. And that's why He hears us and through His Word uh, responds in in, in an increasing, powerful way, not in a voice or a mystery, the book. And when God says, nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, what do you suppose He means? Not one thing, no matter what you're experiencing today. It's not a ledger, and we must learn to see the goodness and blessings of God every single day of our life particularly in a season of thanksgiving there's a purging that will continue in the church there are those who will fall away because of the absence of truth community and the church there are those who will walk away because this god did not respond the way they wanted and then there'll be a remnant Whether that's two of us or 200 or more, we will stand upon the promises, we will learn to lament, and we will express our confidence that a better day is coming, and our lives are filled with blessing. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. Be sober minded, watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout all the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish You. To Him be the dominion forever and forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, teach us to sing of Your goodness. Grant us the courage to come into Your presence with our hurts and our cries and our anguish. And even in the stillness, even in this quietness, even when you you don't seem to be there, remind us that you hear us, that you know our names, that you hear our cries, and through your word and your people, remind us that a better day is coming. All for the glory of God. Sole Deo Gloria. Whatever you do, it is good. May it resound in Your praise, accept our worship in this season of thanks, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.